Okay, so today we're going to continue talking about uh, conditions in American religious life before the Civil War, and we're going to more focus more closely on the Methodist Church and also their connection with the abolitionists. And then we're going to talk about the growing holiness movement. We're also going to talk about transcendentalism um, because that's an important movement as well. We have seen how Baptists were split over the issue of slavery and the changes in Baptist congregations in the years leading up to the American Civil War. During the early 19th century, uh, if you recall from previous talks, Methodists and Baptists in the South had reached out to smallholding farmers and enslaved, as well as to the planter class. And they began to argue for better treatment of the enslaved saying that the Bible acknowledged slavery, but that Christianity had a paternalistic role to improve conditions. But of course, conditions got worse. And Methodists in the South ended up confronting these same issues as their Baptist counterparts. The introduction of an improved cotton gin had enabled profitable cultivation of cotton in new areas of the South, increasing the demand for slaves but remember, in, at the beginning of the 19th century, Congress had enacted legislation that said no more slaves can be imported into America. So there's increasing pressure on this horrible system of enslavement and plantation culture uh, where the demand for slaves is increasing. It is illegal, although you know people did continue to bring in slaves illegally. Um, and, you know, at the same time, the church is saying to uh, the slaveholders, you know, what you're doing is wrong. You should set these people free. Okay, and manumission, fancy word for setting a slave free, uh, manumissions nearly ceased. Uh, so as we're going from the 1830, in the 1830s, if you recall from a previous talk, uh, many Southern slaveholders were feeling convicted. You know, the, the pastors were preaching against slavery and they were setting their slaves free. Uh, but then shifts occur that cause slaveholders in the South to just basically stop. You know, it's like, we can't set these slaves free. We have to produce more. We have to have more slaves. We can't set free the slaves we have. Um, and then slave rebellions, of course, you know, we profiled Nat Turner's slave rebellion and what happened there. Uh, probably the worst instance of a slave rebellion in the United States. Um, but of course, in response to that, uh, the states clamped down with um, very harsh laws um, that outlawed manumission, that outlawed educating slaves. You could not teach your slaves to read and write. It was illegal to do so. And all of these laws that, that hardened this system of enslavement. But Northern Methodist congregations increasingly opposed slavery, and some members be, began to be active in the abolitionist movement. Many Methodists in England were abolitionists. The Southern Methodist churches accommodated slavery, and they said, well, it's legal here in these states, so we're just gonna go along with it. 
So we need to talk about the abolitionists. We've already talked about Frederick Douglass, uh, a black leader who was very active in the abolitionist movement, um, but we haven't talked about the abolitionists in the North more generally. So this movement became more organized in the period from 1830 on right up into the Civil War. And by 1840, more than 15,000 people were members of abolitionist societies in the US. The white abolitionist movement in the North was led by social reformers that included William Lloyd Garrison. He was the founder of the American Anti-Slavery Society and he published a newspaper called The Liberator. And this was his abolitionist newspaper and he vowed to never stop publishing this newspaper until slavery came to an end in the United States and all the slaves were set free. Other notable white abolitionists include writers like Wendell Phillips, John Greenleaf Whittier. If you've taken any American literature classes, you might have heard of Whittier. He was a poet. Uh, and of course, Harriet Beecher Stowe, daughter of Lyman Beecher and the author of Uncle Tom's Cabin. And that book, of course, which we'll talk more about later, that book uh, had a profound impact on Americans. So William Lloyd Garrison was born on December 10th, 1805 in Newburyport, Massachusetts, the son of immigrants from the British colony of New Brunswick, Canada. Garrison was a devout Christian. And a quote from a biography says, the source of Garrison's power was the Bible. From his earliest days, he read the Bible constantly and prayed constantly. Garrison learned typesetting and how to run a printing shop as an apprentice when he was a young man. Later, he would write his editorials in The Liberator while setting them in type without writing them out first on paper. And if you've ever seen pictures of people setting up type to be run through an offset type printing press, you have to be able to read backwards, okay? So he, he was a pretty amazing guy. He could just write his editorials on the fly as he was setting them up to be printed. Garrison co-founded The Liberator uh, with other abolitionists to espouse his abolitionist views. And in 1832, he organized the New England Anti-Slavery uh, Society from his subscribers. And then this expanded into the American Anti-Slavery Society and it advocated for the immediate abolition of slavery. Paid subscriptions to the Liberator were always fewer than its circulation. This was not a popular newspaper, uh, as you can imagine, in many parts of the US, even in the North. In 1834, it had 2,000 subscribers, three-fourths of whom were black. Not a lot of white support for this. Benefactors paid to have the newspaper distributed free of charge to state legislators, governors, mansions, Congress, and the White House. Garrison rejected violence as a means for ending slavery, but his critics saw him as a dangerous fanatic because he demanded immediate and total emancipation without compensation to the slave owners. Others had proposed various schemes to uh, be able to free the slaves 
and yet provide some sort of compensation to their owners. Uh, but Garrison said, no, just, just set them free. End this system now. Nat Turner's slave rebellion in Virginia, just seven months after the Liberator started publication, fueled the outcry against Garrison in the South. A North Carolina grand jury indicted him for distributing incendiary material. And the Georgia legislature offered a $5,000 reward, equivalent to $135,717 today, well, that's a lot of money, for his capture and conveyance to the state for trial. Large bounties were offered in southern states for the capture of Garrison, dead or alive. Gallows were erected in front of his house and he was burned in effigy. That's, you know, he stirred up a lot of trouble, basically. <laughs> uh, uh, so we also want to take a look at Harriet Beecher Stowe. Harriet Elizabeth Beecher was born in Litchfield, Connecticut on June 14, 1811. She was the sixth of 11 children born to Lyman Beecher. And we've talked about Lyman Beecher and what he did in a previous talk. Her mother was Lyman Beecher's first wife, Roxanna Foote, a deeply religious woman who died when Stowe was only five years old. Harriet's siblings included a sister, Catherine Beecher, an educator and author, as well as brothers who became ministers, including Henry Ward Beecher, who became a famous preacher and abolitionist, Charles Beecher, and Edward Beecher. So the Beecher family was very active in the abolitionist movement, uh, both the men and the women. Harriet enrolled in the Hartford Female Seminary run by her older sister, Catherine. There she received something girls seldom got, a traditional academic education with a focus on the classics, languages, and mathematics. It was not at all common for girls to get what we would consider today a basic education through high school. Um, and I should also say a lot of people who were part of this abolitionist movement were very much in favor of women's rights. And um, you know, so along with freedom for blacks and full citizenship for blacks, they were also advocating for really what amounted to full citizenship for women, the ability for women to be educated, to own property, and to vote. Women did not have the vote. In 1832, at the age of 21, Harriet Beecher moved to Cincinnati, Ohio, to join her father, who had become the president of Lane Theological Seminary. Cincinnati's trade and shipping business on the Ohio River was booming, drawing numerous migrants from different parts of the country, including many escaped slaves, bounty hunters seeking them, and Irish immigrants who worked on the state's canals and railroads. Cincinnati was essentially a boom, a boom town in this time period. Unfortunately, in 1829, the ethnic Irish attacked blacks, wrecking areas of the city, trying to push out these competitors for jobs. Beecher met several blacks who had suffered in those attacks, and their experiences contributed to her later, later writing about slavery. She was also influenced by the Lane debates on enslavement. Uh, remember at Lane Theological Seminary, where uh, Lyman Beecher was president, the student body was in an uproar over the issue of slavery. You have northern students 
attend, you know, Cincinnati was like kind of in the heart of uh, underground railroad territory. You, you know, this is a major conduit for people, for enslaved people trying to escape. Uh, you have, again, you have immigrants and, and pro probably in the next talk I do, I'm gonna begin to focus on immigrant groups coming into the United States and how that impacted American uh, religious life. So you have all these groups kind of converging in this one city. Um, economically, it's it's prospering and flourishing, but it's you know this is a this is a time of real upheaval. Um, so at Lane Seminary, uh, there was a series of debates held on 18 days in February of 1834, and different proponents, some who advocated for colonization, in other words, let's send enslaved blacks back to Africa. Uh, others who wanted to completely abolish uh, uh, slavery, and then those who were pro-slavery. You know, you have uh, students coming from mainly Kentucky. Kentucky is a slave state, and those students are arguing that slavery should remain in place. So things are getting heated. Harriet attended most of the debates, but her father and the college trustees, afraid of more violence from anti-abolitionist whites, prohibited any further discussions of the topic, and so the abolitionists moved north to north, uh, sorry, northeast Ohio to Oberlin College, where students of all races were accepted and where anti-slavery discussions could be held without fear of suppression. While in Cincinnati, Harriet met Reverend Calvin L. Ellis Stowe, a widower, teaching at the seminary, and they were married in 1836, and they had seven children, including twin daughters. By 1850, Harriet had moved with her family to Brunswick, Maine, where her husband was now teaching at Bowdoin College. The Stowes were ardent critics of slavery and supported the Underground Railroad, temporarily housing several fugitive uh, slaves in their home. Stowe claimed to have a vision of a dying slave during a communion service at Brunswick's First Parish Church, which inspired her to write his story. And during this time, she also experienced the loss of her 18-month-old son, Samuel Char Charles Stowe. She said, having experienced losing someone so close to me, I can sympathize with all the poor, powerless slaves at the unjust auctions. You will always be in my heart, Samuel Charles Stowe. This is a quote from her biography. On March 9, 1850, Stowe wrote to Gamaliel Bailey, editor of the weekly anti-slavery journal, The National Era, that she planned to write a story about the problem of slavery. And again, another quote from Stowe, I feel now that the time has come when even a woman or a child who can speak a word for freedom and humanity is bound to speak. I hope every woman who can write will not be silent. By mid-year of 1851, serial installments of Uncle Tom's, Uncle Tom's Cabin, Life Among the Lowly, were published. They were initially published in parts in a magazine. And here is a, a reproduction of a, an early edition of Uncle Tom's Cabin. It's a long book. Has anybody ever read Uncle Tom's Cabin? A few people have. Yeah, it is a long book. It is worth the read. 
Um, but it's, you know, it's, it really was groundbreaking in its day. Finally, the novel was published in book form in 1852. Harriet wrote the sentimental novel to depict the reality of slavery, while also asserting that Christian love could overcome slavery. The novel focuses on the character of Uncle Tom, a long-suffering enslaved black man around whom the stories of the other characters revolve. Uncle Tom's Cabin was the best-selling novel and the second best-selling book of the 19th century following the Bible. It is credited with helping fuel the abolitionist cause in the 1850s. Stowe was partly inspired to create Uncle Tom's Cabin by the slave narrative, The Life of Josiah Henson, formerly a slave, now an inhabitant of Canada, as narrated by himself. Stowe was also inspired by the posthumous biography of Phoebe Ann Jacobs, a slave for most of her life and a devout congregationalist of Brunswick, Maine. Again, what we fail to remember often is that there were enslaved blacks in the North. Um, you know, I don't know about you, but I like to think of things in nice, neat little boxes, which is not how life is. All the, you know, all the slaves are below the Mason-Dixon line. They're all in the South. They're not in the West. They're not in the North. Wrong. Totally wrong. Another source Stowe used as research for Uncle Tom's Cabin was American Slavery as it is, Testimony of a Thousand Witnesses, a volume co-authored by Theodore Dw Dwight Weld and the Grimke sisters. So abolitionists and people who were advocating for the end of slavery were uh, talking to, to enslaved people who had escaped slavery and basically said, you tell us your story, we'll write it down, we'll publish it, we'll disseminate it, and we'll make sure that people know about it. So there were a lot of what are called um, slave narratives. I've got a book at home that's like this thick, full of them. Um, not easy reading by any stretch, but the publication of Uncle Tom's Cabin, the dissemination of the slave narratives, and also the fact that, again, the camera is being developed and different, different ways of capturing images are improving. And so depictions of slaves, photographs of slaves, and the, uh, the scars on their bodies that they endured from the horrible treatment they received these pictures began to be spread as well. So people are beginning to wake up and understand what slavery actually is. And again, I wanna emphasize Christians are at the forefront of this movement, despite the fact that there are Christians uh, trying to cover all this up and keep the system going, so to speak, in the South. And they're, in some cases, they're almost apologists or giving apologetics for slavery. Nonetheless, there are Christians who are, are trying to open people's eyes to what this system actually is. So uh, Harriet Beecher Stowe wrote another book, A Key to Uncle Tom's Cabin, which came out in 1853 because a lot of people are saying, how could, you know, this isn't this bad, she's exaggerating, or, you know, this isn't, this isn't an accurate picture. So what Stowe was trying to say is, yes, it is, 
the, you know, these things are based on what we know to be true about slavery from those who have endured it themselves. So it helped Stowe verify her claims about slavery um, and again was an attempt to open people's eyes to the horrors of it. White abolitionists in the North were joined by black abolitionists, many of whom were former slaves, such as Frederick Douglass. There were also uh, free blacks who were uh, active in the movement. Uh, the brothers Charles Henry Langston and John Mercer Langston were prominent black abolitionists in the North, and they helped to found the Ohio Anti-Slavery Society. Methodists continued to be divided over slavery, and a third group within the Methodist movement emerged that wanted the church to simply avoid controversy and become more institutional, moving away from itinerant ministries and camp meetings and toward a parish or diocese structure. You know, so some Methodists are like, we just can't get involved with all of this controversy, and they were looking to establish the Methodist movement um, as not so much a movement anymore, but as a denomination, a church. However, in the South, Methodist clergy were not supposed to own any enslaved persons. Uh, again, this is what the Baptists ran into. In 1840, the Reverend James Osgood Andrew, a Methodist bishop living in Oxford, Georgia, bought an enslaved woman. Fearing that she would end up with an inhumane owner of sold, Andrew kept her but let her work independently. Uh, the 1840 Methodist Episcopal Church General Conference considered the matter but did not expel Andrew. And then four years later, this man married a woman who owned a slave inherited from her mother, making the bishop the owner of two slaves. And for most Methodists, this is unthinkable. As a bishop, he had obligations both in the North and the South and was criticized for holding slaves. And finally, the 1844 General Conference voted to suspend him, and he could not exercise his Episcopal office until he gave up the slaves. Now, the Southern Methodists, the Southern delegates to the conference, disputed the authority of a general conference to discipline bishops, and, you know, this is becoming, again, a, an argument over can a, a, an, uh, a bishop or a pastor in the church own enslaved persons? Is this okay? The cultural differences that had divided the nation during the mid-19th century was also dividing the Methodist Episcopal Church. The 1844 dispute led Methodists in the South to break off and form a separate denomination. So just as the Baptists did, the Methodists split uh, regionally. Delegates from the Southern Conferences held a convention at the 4th Street Church in Louisville, Kentucky from May 1st through 19th, 1845 and organized the Methodist Episcopal Church of the South. Uh, this church had uh, about a little over 500,000 whites, almost 200,000 blacks, nearly all of whom were enslaved, and 4,200 Native Americans. After the Civil War, uh, the church continued, but most black members left 
For either the independent black denominations of the African Methodist Episcopal Church, or AME, founded in Philadelphia, or the African Methodist Episcopal Zion Church, AME Zion, founded in New York. And we have talked about those two groups, uh, and they were founded in the late 1700s in the north, and they gained many more members after this, the conclusion of hostilities in the war. Uh, some blacks joined the Northern Methodist Episcopal Church, which planted new congregations in the South. AME uh, and AME Zion missionaries to the South after the war aided freedmen and attracted hundreds of thousands of new members from both Baptists and Methodists and new converts to Christianity. By 1860, of the nearly 200,000 African American members in the MEC South, by 1866, only about 49,000 remained. Um, so as you would expect, after the war is over, uh, blacks have been emancipated, and now they're free to choose whatever church they want to belong to, and they opt for churches in which they could hold leadership positions and move forward. Uh, and then by 1870, most of the remaining black members of the MEC South left to le form the Colored Methodist Episcopal Church. Uh, now it is called the Christian Methodist Episcopal Church, and that denomination still exists. Oops. During the American Civil War, uh, of course, 1861 to 65, the MEC South adopted the title of the Methodist Episcopal Church in the Confederate States of America. Um, so after the war, you know, you have to pivot again because there are no more Confederate states. In the post-war period, the MEC South focused on church growth, expanding its missionary activity into the American Southwest and Mexico. By 1880, it had almost 800,000 members, mostly white, and over a million by 1886. Although usually avoiding politics and social just, justice issues, by 1886, this church had begun to denounce divorce and called for the prohibition of alcohol. And prohibition became a big emphasis of many churches in this late 19th century period. But you notice what I haven't told you here, I haven't told you that the two groups, North and South, come back together. They don't. All right, um, we'll talk more about the Methodists uh, as we get into more recent time periods. You know, there's, there's lots more to say about the Methodists. Um, but I want to turn now to the growing uh, American holiness movement. How many of you, have, of you have heard of holiness churches or the word holiness in the church name? Yeah, there's, and there are a lot. So we need to talk about this particular movement um, and it, its effect on different churches. Uh, so this is a Christian movement that emerged mainly within 19th century Methodism and to a lesser extent in other traditions, including the Quakers and the Anabaptists. The movement is based on Wesleyan theology and is defined by its view of personal sin and emphasis on the doctrine of a second work of grace in the Christian life, 
uh, generally called entire sanctification or Christian perfection. According to some holiness traditions, the term perfection means completeness of Christian character, its freedom from all sin, and possession of all the gifts of the Spirit, complete in kind. A number of evangelical Christian denominations, parachurch organizations, and movements have emphasized these beliefs as central doctrine. And the holiness movement basically has its roots with John and Charles Wesley, John Fletcher, and other uh, key Methodists uh, from the 18th century. And the Methodists in America continued the interest in Christian holiness that had been started by Wesley in England. They continued to publish Wesley's works and tracts, including his famous A Plain Account of Christian Perfection. From 1788 to 1808, the entire text of A Plain Account was placed in the Discipline Manual of the Methodist Episcopal Church. Many in early American Methodism professed the experience of entire sanctification, including Bishop Francis Asbury. The Methodists during this period placed a strong emphasis on holy living and their concept of entire sanctification. By the 1840s, a new emphasis on holiness and Christian perfection began, and it was brought about in large part by the revivalism and camp meetings of the Second Great Awakening. Two major holiness leaders during this period were Methodist preacher Phoebe Palmer and her husband, Dr. Walter Palmer. In 1837, Palmer experienced what she called entire sanctification. Other members of her family experienced the sanctification soon thereafter. They felt that they should teach others about that experience and teach them how to have it for themselves. Palmer's sister, Sarah Lankford, had been holding meetings on Tuesday nights in 1835 for the promotion of holiness in her New York City home. At first, only women attended these meetings, but eventually Methodist bishops and hundreds of clergy and laymen began to attend as well. Two years later, Phoebe Palmer became the leader of the meetings, which were referred to as the Tuesday meeting for the promotion of holiness. The meetings were always held in the Palmer's home. Phoebe always refused to hold the Tuesday meetings anywhere except a home, and her house had to be enlarged to accommodate the meetings. Beginning in 1839, men were allowed to attend the meetings. Isn't that a twist? <laughs> um, and I will say, and, and we haven't talked about this a lot, but uh, Methodist women were active leaders in the Methodist movement. They might not have been ordained as clergy or bishops, but they were very active. And honestly, without women leading home groups, the Methodist movement might have even died out. Um, so uh, some important Methodist bishops attended these uh, meetings, and then eventually this is beginning to have an impact on the church nationwide. The Palmers became sought-after speakers, and they ended up with a traveling ministry going from church to conferences to camp meetings and speaking and preaching uh, and ministering wherever they, they went. Now, an important black Methodist leader 
uh, during this time period in this growing holiness movement is Amanda Berry Smith. She had been a preacher in the AME church and she testified that she became entirely sanctified in 1868. And I'm sorry, this picture is kind of hard to see, but that's because of the way it was reproduced. It's not an actual photograph. It was, a, it started off as an engraving and then they did other things with it. And so it's, it's not easy to see her features, but um, uh, she's, she's a pretty formidable looking woman. <laughs> I think. She, she was very tough. Born into slavery in 1837, Smith was fortunate to have grown up within her intact family, was able to learn to read and write, and her father was able to purchase her family's freedom before the Civil War. Smith worked as a cook and a washerwoman to provide for herself and her daughter after her husband was killed in the Civil War. By the time Smith was 32, she had lost two husbands and four of her five children. Attending religious camp meetings and revivals helped Smith work through her grief and avoid depression. Prayer became a way of life for her as she trusted God for shoes, the money to buy her sister's freedom, and food for her family. She became well-known for her beautiful voice and inspired teaching and opportunities to evangelize in the South and West opened up for her. Smith traveled to England and later ministered in India, where she stayed for 18 months. Uh, she went to Africa and worked there for eight years. Um, she traveled to Liberia and West Africa and adopted two African boys. She was invited to preach at Lafayette Avenue Presbyterian Church in Brooklyn, New York, then the largest church in its denomination on her return to America. She founded an orphanage in Chicago in 1899. She was very active and uh, did a lot and was an integral part of this holiness movement. Now, Christians from many other denominations and movements became involved with the holiness movement. Presbyterians, Baptists, and Congregationalists became involved with Wesleyans and Methodists in the movement. Now, because this is a movement and not a church denomination, its loose structure allows for people to do lots of different things within it, hold camp meetings, revivals. You don't, you know, this is something that wasn't kept within the church walls and you know, they held conferences and did all kinds of things outside of a traditional church structure. And so they were able to reach many different Christians from different denominations. The holiness movement is important for us to remember because it laid the foundations for the later emergence of Pentecostal groups in the late 19th and early 20th century. And of course, we will be talking about the Pentecostals. Now, finally, I want to mention the transcendentalists. Now, transcendentalism was not really a religion. It was more of a philosophical movement, but it did have an impact and, and touches upon uh, American thinking and American religious life, and we do want to note its influences. It developed in the late 1820s and 1830s in New England, and Although it's not technically a religion, it has a lot in common with universalism. 
Uh, remember, we talked about this before. This is the idea that all will be saved. Nobody will go to hell. Uh, you know, that somehow God will save everybody. And so, um, you know, that's what Christianity should preach. And then there's also the idea of Unitarianism that denies the Trinity, denies Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God is just God, and uh, Unitarians, you know, they're just generally good people, and that's, you know, Unitarianism is one of those things. It's kind of hard to define. It's kind of a nebulous thing. But these two religious ideas of universalism and Unitarianism kind of mesh with transcendentalism. And transcendentalism, um, not coincidentally probably, emerges in the same part of the U.S. where Unitarianism first, you know, comes into existence. So a core belief is the inherent goodness of people and nature. And while society and its institutions have corrupted the purity of the individual, people are at their best when truly self-reliant and independent. And that's a key American idea. You know, Americans are known for being self-reliant and independent. And the transcendentalists saw divine experience inherent in the everyday rather than believing in a distant heaven. Transcendentalists saw physical and spiritual phenomena as part of dynamic processes rather than discrete entities. So we're not going to talk about God. We're not going to talk about Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We're just going to talk about these impersonal forces that exist in the universe, uh, both physical and spiritual. Their spiritual beliefs did not include belief in a personal God, uh, but focused on the power of the individual and the oversoul. This idea of the oversoul. It's kind of like, you know, in the 12-step groups, they talk about believing in a higher power. It, you know, you can kind of think of this idea of the transcendentalists as there's something above us and beyond us. We don't know exactly what it is. We'll call it the oversoul. Each person is empowered to behold within, within him or herself a piece of the divine oversoul. Transcendentalism was influenced by English and German romanticism, the philosophy of Immanuel Kant, and Hindu teachings. Now, these names, uh, you know, you might recognize. Important American transcendentalists include Ralph Waldo Emerson, author of many essays and a major figure in the movement, Henry David Thoreau, author best known for his book Walden and his essay Civil Disobedience, Margaret Fuller, journalist, editor, critic, translator, and feminist, Amos Bronson Alcott, father of Louisa May Alcott, and teacher, writer, philosopher, and reformer, Louisa May Alcott, author of many well-known novels, such as Little Women. How many people in here have heard any of these names before? Yep, because a lot of the writings of the transcendentalists are often assigned reading in high school and college literature classes. And it's kind of funny, but also during this period, two other well-known American writers, Nathaniel Hawthorne, and Edgar Allan Poe, 
They thought the transcendentalists were ridiculous and they made fun of them. They wrote some, uh, they wrote some stuff poking fun at them, uh, talking about the oversoul and all these ideas. Transcendentalists had a deep gratitude and appreciation for nature, not only for artistic and philosophical purposes, but also as a tool to observe and understand the structured inner workings of the natural world. The conservation of an undisturbed natural world was also extremely important to the transcendentalists. The idealism that is a core belief of transcendentalism resulted in an inherent skepticism of capitalism, westward expansion, industrialization, and progress, attitudes that many 19th century Americans viewed as positive. Emerson emphasized the transcendental beliefs in the holistic power of the natural landscape in his essay, Nature. In the woods, we return to reason and faith. There I feel that nothing can befall me in life, no disgrace, no calamity, leaving me my eyes, which nature cannot repair. Standing on the bare ground, my head bathed by the blithe air and uplifted into infinite space, all mean egotism vanishes. And I know this is gonna sound odd. I become a transparent eyeball. I am nothing. I see all. The currents of the universal being circulate through me. I am part or particle of God. So, yeah, this is, you know, this is kind of way off the beaten path. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's, it sounds like today, I, I would say this sounds like New Age philosophy or new age religion. That's what it sounds like. And of course, as uh, you know, the author of Ecclesiastes in the Bible tells us, there is nothing new under the sun. Uh, these ideas have circulated through other religions and philosophies, um, but here they emerge in America in the 19th century. Transcendentalism influenced the growing movement of mental sciences of the mid-19th century, which would later become known as the New Thought Movement. And this is essentially a heretical non-Christian movement, but you should be aware of the existence of it. New Thought considers Emerson as one of its intellectual fathers. People like Emma Curtis Hopkins, the teacher of teachers, Ernest Holmes, founder of a group called Religious Science, Charles and Myrtle Fillmore, founders of Unity, uh, that group still exists. Melinda Kramer and Nona Brooks, founders of Divine Science, were all greatly influenced by transcendentalism. And transcendentalism also helped popularize Hindu teachings in the US and Unitarian ideas in India. So there was kind of a dialogue that was struck between uh, the American transcendentalists and Hindu gurus and teachers. And so there was this exchange of ideas and the Unitarians basically imported their ideas into India, whereas Amer American transcendentalists are reading Hindu writings and incorporating Hindu beliefs into their uh, ideas. 
The New Thought movement was also based on the teachings of Phineas Quimby, an American hypnotist and healer. Quimby had developed a belief system that included the idea that illness just originates in the mind as a consequence of erroneous beliefs and that a, a mind open to God's wisdom could overcome any illness. And the New Thought movement would have an impact nearly 100 years later in the emergence of the Word of Faith movement, the prosperity gospel, and its prominence within Pentecostal and charismatic circles in the U.S. So, you know, we may look at these ideas and think, how, how odd, how wrong, you know, how off the beaten path, so to speak, but ideas have consequences, and, you know, what a previous generation may have dismissed, a succeeding generation may pick back up. Um, so these ideas have not disappeared. And uh, the quote I wrote, I gave you from, uh, is from Ralph Waldo Emerson's uh, essay on nature. And um, a lot of these, a lot of these writings, they're in the public domain now, and you can read them if you're interested uh, on the internet for free. Um, and again, some of you may have been assigned to read uh, uh, some writings by transcendentalists in school. Um, if you take an American literature class, you're almost always going to run into Emerson and Thoreau. All right, that concludes what I have uh, for this uh, section. Um, next time, we'll talk more about uh, the black church and uh, movements within the black church after the American Civil War ends and the strides they were able to make in spite of all the difficulties they faced. But this concludes what we have for today.